be. Good morning. <laughs> if I had a nickel for every time I started this show and for some reason there's some video audio problem before I come on, I'd, I'd be a rich man. <laughs> I don't know what it is about this, this setup, but it's just very sensitive. Hopefully it's working. Hopefully the audio is sounding good and everything's going well. Good morning. I'm Travis Shaddix. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge, and we're here studying turfgrass knowledge. <laughs> Sounds a little bit peculiar, I suppose, but we're here trying to basically figure out how we know what we know. Even in the world of science, you know, you may see a publication, or you may see a scientist say this or make a claim or do this or whatever. Just ask yourself, how do you know? The, re the way we generally will move forward and consider ourselves knowledgeable on issues is by following the scientific method and seeing what the evidence says and forming best management practices on those research projects and so forth. The way we don't accumulate knowledge is by doing what everybody else has always done for years. Doing something, we see a response, so therefore it must work. Those all sound... Um, Practically speaking, they sound like they're good ideas, but in reality, they're not wise ways of developing best management practices because there are numerous reasons and ways in which your observations can be flawed and false and whatever we used to do in the past could have been wrong. We used to do a lot of things in the past we no longer do anymore. There's an article from, well, it used to be called the... It's today it's called the USJ Green Section, but back in the 1920s it was called the, I can't remember what it was called. But anyway, in 1927, 1929, there's an article in the USJ Green Section that says controlling, I think it says controlling voles or controlling gophers with gasoline engine discharge. So what they were doing was they were hooking up pipes to the exhausts of automobiles, which were obviously, which was leaded gas back then. And they were pumping the fumes from the exhaust into the holes in the ground. <laughs> and the recommendation was to get rid of moles in the, in the, in the grass and the soil by pumping the soil full of gasoline engine discharge. Maybe I'll show that article one day. It's actually quite humorous, but the, the, Historical literature is loaded with stuff like that. So just because we used to do it in the past is not a good reason to continue to do it moving forward. So that's what we're here for. We're here to try to figure out um, what we know, what we know. Today, I have a brief little article from last year, or two years ago, just a, a periodical article that I'm going to go over about artificial turf. And then I'm going to go over an article that was I had already scheduled. I couldn't find it, and I eventually found it. But... The, uh, an, an, a viewer asked in chat, I believe his name was Chad, about the particle size differences. Would there be any differences in the size of the urea particle on various, you know, whatever, volatilization or uptake or whatever? And I'm going to go over an article that has a little bit to do with that. So I, I found it. The reason I couldn't find it was because it was so old. I, I don't know. I had, it took me a while to find it, but I eventually found it. <clears throat> Good morning, Lush and Andrew and Randy, Bahid, Rich the Long Guy, Brady, Mitch Bird, Transition Zone Guy. Bahid asks, what's my opinion about plant growth regulators on turf? So my opinion is to some degree irrelevant because I'm not a specialist on plant growth regulators. And that's sort of the, the danger of asking someone who's perceived to be a specialist in turf grasses so like i'm i'm a specialist in soils and turf grasses but that doesn't mean i know everything about everything i worked primarily in nutrients and nitrogen phosphorus potassium iron soil dynamics and then moving forward into this plant as opposed to plant dynamics going backwards into the soil and so i'm not really a specialist in plant growth, re growth regulators but i know people who are and if you want to know more about that, I will eventually get into plant growth regulators. 
and I'll review the literature and hopefully I'll have an author or two on that are that are specialists in that area, have published on it and done work with plant growth regulators. But you gotta be very careful in my position, and I'm this is really more of a comment to other people who are in similar positions to me. When you're asked a question like that and you're a professor or a PhD or whatever. Um, you got to be real careful about answering those questions if you don't actually know the answer, or, you don't, or you're not a specialist in, the, in that field, because your opinion given is oftentimes weighted heavily, when in reality it may not uh, may not be valid. It may be wrong. So, if, like for example, if you asked, I'll I'll use Dr. Crow because he and I just chit chatted about two or three weeks ago. If you asked Dr. Crow at University of Florida. Hey, what's your opinion on phosphorus um, extraction on soil tests? I'm pretty confident that Dr. Crow is not going to answer that question because <laughs> he doesn't know, and he's not arrogant or pompous enough to actually try to try to to give you an answer on that. But if you asked me, hey, what's the um, what's the current status on nematicide resistance on you know lance nematodes or whatever? I kind of have a general idea, but I would never answer that question. I would refer yourself to Dr. Crow or some other nematode specialist because we don't want to give out, you know, mis- we don't give out misinformation. Even if we think we kind of know the answer, it's really best to, re- you know, relay that question to someone who is actually a specialist in that area. I mean, granted, I mean, my wife and I have this discussion all the time. Granted, you know, I probably know more than just the average homeowner on a variety of turf grass topics. I mean, as do you, if you're listening to this, the odds are pretty good. You probably know more than the average homeowner. But that doesn't mean my opinion's correct on a topic that I'm not a specialist in, right? So just try to reserve some judgment until um, you either are a specialist or just refer people to those areas. At least that's my take on it. That's my, that's my direction. Okay. So real quick, I appreciate all the emails. I really do. I've been getting two or three or four emails a day on various topics and questions and occasional comments. I Even though I don't always reply to emails, it's not because I didn't read it. I've mentioned this before. I just, I have a, I have a life outside this, which involves, you know, two young children <laughs> and I'm busy. Um, I mean, no offense to everybody here, but I'd rather go ice skating than answer turf grass questions. <laughs> so. Um, I, I, I read them all. I do read all your emails. I try to reply back to them or respond back to them if it's a quick response. Or what I'll probably do more than likely is I'll just reserve it for the show and then I'll, I'll remove any identification information out of it so people don't know what you're asking the question and I'll just answer the question on the show. Uh, but I do read them. So please you know, keep them coming and by all means consider using the voicemail 859-444-4234 which is in the description of the video. Um, if you want to send me a text to that number or send a voicemail, I never answer it. So you don't ever have to worry about me picking up the phone. You can just leave a voicemail. And if you do, I'll use that. If, if it's a question of interest or question of the topic that we're going over that, that month, then I'll potentially use that on the show to answer it on the show. Um, I also have a couple of emails about how to get a hold of me and, you know, get my opinion on things. Calendly.com is the best option. Calendly.com slash Travis Shaddix. You can see my calendar on all the open spots. You go on, you log on, you select the time slot. You don't have to ask any questions. It's If it's there, that means it's available on my calendar and you select it and then it automatically puts a notification or an email calendar appointment on your device and on my device automatically. So it's all pretty much seamless. So if you're interested in getting my opinion on those things, that's the way to do it. Or I will potentially do it on the show. Okay. All right. Let's get into the, the episode. I'm going to go over a article on artificial turf. Now, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I don't remember when exactly, I had an article on, I think it was in Las Vegas. There was another article in California about artificial turf. And one city is had, I think it was in California. The city in California had banned natural grass and was putting in plastic grass. 
artificial turf and then realized that the artificial turf is causing more problems <laughs> or at least they they perceived that through various chemicals that are in the artificial turf and then they banned artificial turf and went back to natural grass so it's just an endless cycle of stupidity and they don't you know they're making decisions based upon who knows what they're not getting information from you know evidence-based sources and california is full of scientists who are very knowledgeable in this area and nevada is too new mexico i mean these there's very good turf grass scientists in that area who could help these politicians but i don't know if they ever reach out to them regardless and then so one was banned natural grass then put in plastic then banned plastic put in natural grass and then in las vegas they're banning natural grass to put in plastic grass i'm like well didn't you just you know <laughs> learn from california they realize once they put in plastic grass there's going to be another side effect. So um, who knows what's going on there? But it, a year or two ago, an article came out in The Guardian. It was, about some, it was about some work done in Boston. So this is a little bit of an older article. You guys may be aware of it. Um, but this article is what I'm going to go over today. And it's entitled, Boston Bans Artificial Turf in Parks Due to Toxic Forever Chemicals. So for those who may not be familiar with Toxic Forever Chemicals, I'm not. I'll just say that I'm not a specialist in PFOS, um, but those are the compounds in artificial turf that are perceived at least, uh, well, probably true, but I'm not aware of it being true. I don't know. I'm not a specialist in this area, but the PFOS are forever chemicals and compounds that are in artificial turf, apparently. So I'm going to read through this article real quick. And then the reason, the reason I'm doing this is because in a month or so, I'm going to start going over injuries from artificial turf in the medical literature. And um, there was an there was an interview by Roger Goodell, the um, in the NFL. He's the NFL whatever big wig in the NFL. And it was it was an article on I forget whose show it was on, but he was asking him about artificial turf and players wanting natural grass, and you know what's the NFL stance on that. And he gave one of the one of the worst answers ever. I mean, he's completely full of it. He said, uh, you know, the NFL is primarily interested and concerned about the player safety, you know, first. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> it's clearly not true. And then he said, he said, um, we want to follow the science. We won't let the science guide us. Well, the science is pretty clear on this issue, right? I mean, this, I don't know what science he's reading, but I'm going to go over probably three or four articles on injury um, probabilities and on artificial turf versus natural grass that have been published in the medical literature. So you hear this stuff on um, CNN or whatever, Fox News or whatever news you listen to. And it's like artificial turf is causing more problems or artificial turf isn't causing more problems or whatever. You only hear it on the news. Very rarely does someone actually take the time to actually go look at the medical literature and see what, it, what are the actual data showing? What are the results? I'm going to do that in a couple of months, right? But this article has something to do with that. It's artificial turf. And this has more to do with actual chemicals and artificial turf on playgrounds in Boston. So that's, that's sort of the background why I chose this article today. So let's get into it. Boston's mayor, Michelle, you know, this was a couple years ago, 2022. Michelle Wu, who was ordered, has ordered no new artificial turf to be installed in city parks, making Boston the largest municipality in, in a small but growing number around the nation to limit use of products because it contains dangerous chemicals. All artificial turf is made with toxic PFOS compounds. And some is still produced with ground up tires that can contain heavy metals, benzene, volatile organic carbon, and other carcinogens that can pre present a health threat. The material also emits high levels of methane, a potential greenhouse gas, and sheds microplastics and other chemicals into our waterways. Now, I want to make sure it's clear because I'm going to show some other uh, articles about the, you know, how bad lawns are and turf grass are and all this nonsense that people should be out. And they don't have any evidence and don't provide any evidence to support that. And neither does this article. So even though I, I tend to lean towards believing some of this is true, I still, they're still not providing any evidence. So, you know, what's, we got to look at both, you know, my, my criteria for belief is the same on both sides, whether I tend to favor the belief or tend to not believe it in this particular case, they don't provide any evidence. They're just saying stuff. Okay. I, I tend to think majority of it's probably fairly accurate, but I just want to make sure that's clear. I'm not entirely convinced. We already know there are toxic chemicals in the products. So why would we continue to utilize them and have children roll around on them when we have a safe alternative, which is natural grass? Asked Sarah Evans, an environmental health professor for the 
Econ School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. I don't know her. Maybe I can go read some of her articles. Beyond chemical risks, the field the fields can act as heat islands that increase playing field temperatures to as much as 200 degrees Fahrenheit, Evan noted. National Football League players are pressuring the league to ban artificial turf because of injuries, while the U.S. national soccer, soccer teams will only play on natural grass for the same reason. Now, I can tell you with a great deal of confidence that the temperature issue is accurate. You can go back and look at my Twitter account from six, seven, eight years ago. I took a photograph um, of natural grass right next to artificial grass at the research center in Florida. And the temp, uh, I took a, uh, a infrared photography a photograph of it. So you can see the actual temperature of the, te- of the artificial turf compared to natural turf. And it was light years apart. I just couldn't believe it. I don't forget the temperatures now. It's been ages, but 200 degrees Fahrenheit, it sounds a little high, but it, I, it was up there close to it compared to natural grass. It was substantially higher. Now that, 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 um, argument in the NFL, uh, folds, falls apart. If you're using natural grass indoors, obviously, where it's not near of an issue where you're not absorbing the radiation from the sun, but this is in parks outside in Boston. The federal government estimates 12,000 synthetic turf fields exist in the United States, and at least 1,200 more are installed annually. Proponents say they are easier to maintain than grass fields and are not prone to flooding, though they do also require significant maintenance. The product is also increasing, increase, increasingly used on playgrounds or as alternatives to lawns in drought-plagued regions. But in recent years, municipalities have begun limiting their use via bans or moratoriums, including at least four in Massachusetts before Boston, two in California's Bay Area, and, and several in Connecticut. In a statement to The Guardian, a spokesperson for Wu said the city has a preference for grass playing surfaces wherever possible and will not be installing playing surfaces with PFOS chemicals moving forward. So again, I don't know if PFOS issue is actually true. I'm not a specialist in this area, as I said. But if it is true... That, these, that this artificial turf results in some sort of environmental harm or risk, then good for them, you know? Natural grass is one of the most amazing organisms on, on the planet. I mean, it, it's, it's a, think about this. It's a plant that can be walked on and driven on and, and beat up and tore up and it just keeps growing, keeps coming back. De- roots, all, I mean, the root densities and the, the uniformity of roots across the soil is immense. I don't know if there's any plant on earth that, it, that even competes with the amount of roots per square inch or inch per square meter. And on the surface that, you know, maintain, maintains a, you know, a sound uniform surface. It has a tremendous amount of ability to provide oxygen. I mean, there's, there's, there's an inordinate amount of benefits for natural grass. Now, it's, so we want to separate out any potential concerns between, are people concerned about the issues with natural grass in terms of, there's a group of people saying natural grass is evil and it's awful. Natural grass is fine. It's the management of the natural grass that I think we can agree upon needs work. But there's a group of people who are extreme and think natural grass is awful. Well, obviously it's not in Boston. They're saying natural grass. We're going to we're going to replace these artificial fields with natural grass. I think that's a good thing. It's an it's an ordinate, it's an amazing organism. It's just the the human component where we're doing things to the grass that are not within best management practices. That influence needs work, and it will always need work. We will always need to refine our management practices so we have minimal impact. So just want to make sure that's clear. It's not the grass. It's people managing the grass that um, oftentimes can can be, you know, can result in the issue that we don't we don't want, right? And we're working on that. That's what we that's what we do. We constantly refine our management practices. Elsewhere, battles over proposed artificial fields are playing out in Martha's Vineyard. The school district is issuing the city for the city, it was suing the city for prohibiting an artificial field from being installed because of concerns that it would contaminate the aquifer from which the town draws its drinking water. Meanwhile, voters in Malden, just north of Boston, may settle a heated debate over a proposed artificial field. You know, just to be clear, I don't know, like I said, I don't know if installing an artificial field would actually result in contamination of the aquifer. I don't, they're not saying that there's any evidence to support that. So even though I tend to agree with it, I'm still on the same side as I always am. Is like, well, show me, show me, why, why should I be convinced that's true? It may be true, but it might not be true. So just even in cases where I favor the position. It's we still have to hold some sort of critical thinking 
limit and say, okay, well, I'm in favor of that, but still, I, you know, I need something to support that. And they, they haven't provided it. In Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, I don't know how to pronounce that. City officials thought they had ordered a PFAS-free artificial turf field, but later testing revealed that it contained high levels of the chemicals. So I don't know what this, let me see if this is actually an article. Let me see, go back, let me go back to me. See what this. Yeah, so this is just another article. They don't actually show the results of that. So um, I'm not going to go over it, but they said they had a they had a study and revealed that it did have PFAS in it. a state level proposal to ban artificial turf recently failed in Massachusetts. And public health advocates and legislatures in, in others in other state are planning to propose a ban on the material, though they declined to say on the record which state until the proposal is introduced. Artificial turf is made with several layers, including plastic grass blades, plastic backed plastic backing that holds the blades in place and infill that weighs down the turf and helps blades stand upright. Until recently, infill was made with recycled rubber rubber tires called crumb rubber. However, independent and environmental protection agency testing found the materials contain high levels of dangerous chemicals. It seems kind of nonsensical to put ground up tires in a field where children are playing, said Kyla Bennett, a former EPA official and director of science policy at Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. Some companies have begun using cork in, in, as infill, but industry has said the grass blades are backing and backing cannot be made without PFAS. So they're saying the industry has said that it can't be made without PFAS. Well, if the industry is acknowledging it, then there seems to be more credibility that they actually do contain high levels of that. PFAS or per, or per and polyfluoroalkaline substances are a class of about 12,000 12, chemicals often used to make Products resist water, stain, and heat. They are called forever chemicals because they don't naturally break down and are linked to cancer, liver problems, and thyroid issues, birth defects, kidney disease, decreased immunity, and other serious health problems. PFOS can be absorbed through the skin, inhaled, ingested, or get in open wounds as they break off from plastic blades, and children are considered more vulnerable to exposure because they are smaller and their bodies are still developing. Some manufacturers have claimed the amount of PFOS used in artificial turf isn't high enough to or danger to be dangerous or that they use safe PFAS. Independent research has shown time and time again that synthetic turf systems provide many community benefits and continue to meet and exceed regulatory standards for human health, safety, and performance, a synthetic turf council and industry trade groups said in a statement to The Guardian. Well, I wouldn't put a whole lot of confidence in something the synthetic turf council said about their product. It's like It's like when there's a problem with I'll I'll leave all the names out of it, but right now, as we sit here today, this is actually going on. Um, but it's like the university, if they have a sexual um, uh, complaint, what do they call it? It's a, um, harassment. If they have a sexual harassment claim against a faculty member and the, the university investigates itself and finds out that it didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> I mean, come on. Of course they're going to find out they didn't do anything wrong. You know, you need to have an independent an analysis or an independent investigation done. You know, and this is actually going on right now. Not in here. In, well, maybe going on in Kentucky, but I know of one case in the Northeast, well, Northish East, where there was a, a problem with a faculty member and the university did an investigation and we did, we didn't invest, we investigated ourselves and we found we didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> so it's the same thing here within synthetic turf council. Okay, well, everything's fine. you know, there's nothing wrong with what we, what we provide. It's not high enough. Well, it may not be, but I wouldn't have much confidence in something coming from the company that actually is benefiting from its sales. But no studies have been com completed on how PFOS or other chemicals move from artificial turf to children, so the industry doesn't know if it's safe. Evans, Evans said, moreover, the fields are another of a myriad of potential daily exposures to PFOS in consumer products, food, and water, Evans said. <laughs> That's a horrible argument. Is that, the guy, is that the person from... Where is... Who, which one was Evans? Was he or she from the, let me see where Evans was, which one, which, which side this person was on. I'm missing it here. 
I don't see which one. I don't see which side Evans is on. But regardless, that's a horrible argument. <laughs> Let me read that again. That's great. But no study, no studies have been completed on how PFOS or other chemicals move from artificial turf to children. So the industry doesn't know if it's safe, Evans said. And then it says, moreover, oh, this isn't a quote from them. Maybe this is from Evans or from the author. The fields are another of a myriad of potential daily exposures to PFOS in consumer products, food, and water. So what they're saying is, it, well, it, it may come from this, but you also might get it from your food and water. <laughs> That's called the two quote K fallacy. So they're saying, in other words, it's saying, well, you know, if you say, well, you're ugly, well, well, you're ugly too. Well, that doesn't change the fact that I'm also ugly. <laughs> in other words, if you're committing a crime or you're committing, uh, you know, if, let's say you're committing a crime and you go, well, yeah, but they committed one too. It, that doesn't take away from the fact that you also are committing a crime. That's not an argument. That's funny that they said that. It's just one of many. So I don't know if that's, well, it's just one of many. Food and You get it from food and water too. <laughs> that's horrible. Public health advocates note all PFOS studied um, all have been found to accumulate in the environment and to be toxic to humans. And once in the environment, safe compounds used in manufacturing break down into, break down into unsafe chemicals. Again, I don't know if that's true, but Testing of multiple artificial fields has found the presence of highly toxic PFOS compounds like 6,2-FTOH and PFOS. The, MP the EPA recently revised its health advisory of PFOS to state that effectively no level of exposures in drinking water is safe. So if that's, if that's true, where the EPA has stated that no level of the PO PFOS in drinking water is safe, then they might, you know, there may be a ground, some ground to stand on in terms of removing this if they contain POF, PFOSs and it's getting into the groundwater. It's only a matter of time before artificial turf is banned, Bennett said. In a few years, we're going to be asking, how on earth did we ever allow this to happen? I would agree that, that that's probably true with a lot of things we do, right? That's all, that's all that article is, but we're going to be going over um, artificial turf, and I thought that was a a bit of an interesting topic to go over today, a little article. Because when we get to the Goodell interview, I'll show most of that. And it's just horrible. It's just awful. Because, I mean, he's so completely full of BS, it's insane. So when I get to that, it'll be interesting. It'll be a little while because it'll be during, when I start actually talking about artificial turf safety versus natural grass safety. So in Boston, basically, they're, they, a couple years ago, they're, they're banning artificial turf on parks, going back to natural grass for parks, which is probably a very good thing. I tend to agree with that. I wish I knew more about it. But just pointing that out, that in other cities and other locations, they're doing the exact opposite. They're banning natural grass because it requires too much water. No, that grass that you had might require too much water. There's plenty of grasses to choose from that require essentially no irrigation. I mean, maybe you need a little bit to get it growing and get it established. But after that, you know, grasses like Bahia grass and buffalo grass. I mean, there's grasses that, you know, they don't look as nice as Bermudas and some of the other grasses, you know, granted. But they will survive. Even some of the Bermudas, they will survive quite well with very, very little water. So this idea of just banning grasses because they use too much water. And then, well, that's fine if you want to zeroscape and do whatever. But if you're going to put in artificial grass. <laughs> Because the natural grass is using too much water. You're just going to su supplant one potential issue using too much water with another potential issue, including adding, you know, potential harmful compounds into our environment. When in reality, you co probably could have just con uh, consulted with the local turfgrass specialist and found there's a numerous turfgrass species and cultivars within species that would probably be very fine and grow very well there with almost no, no supplemental irrigation. So anyway, that's enough about that. Okay, let's get into the article. The article is volatile loss of ammonia following surface applications of urea to turf and to bare soils. So um, this was written by Gaylord Volk. At the, he was at the University of Florida in the 70s, well, I guess in the 50s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And... Uh, this particular article is a little bit different than our, tip, our normal science article. This was written in the 50s, so the standards were a little bit different back then. 
But even with that, there um, this particular article was written as a as a complimentary paper from an oral presentation they gave at a meeting. And even though it's in Agronomy Journal, it's, it doesn't quite fit the same criteria as most Agronomy Journal papers. So I guess what I'm saying is I wouldn't have a tremendous amount of confidence in all the results, but there is some information here that I think are worth, worth going over. And I'm going to show most of the results in a PowerPoint. But the idea, what we've been going over is, is uh, foliar applications of, of urea. And what we've found for the last several weeks is that urea tends to perform as good or better than most of these other um, soluble sources. Um, for when I say perform turf grass quality or growth or whatever the case might be, adding something in it to reduce volatilization will reduce volatilization in many cases, adding a component in it to reduce denitrification oftentimes will help reduce denitrification occasionally, but they don't really result in an increase in turf quality or growth or color or something like that. Very rarely do they do that, but nevertheless, they do help with the urease inhibition and volatilization. And in the 50s, they hadn't quite worked out all the details yet. And in this paper, Dr. Volk was looking at turf versus bare soil. He was also looking at temperature, soil temperatures and soil pH, the effect of CEC on um, some. You'll see some CEC issues in here. But he also looked at two different forms of urea, which is the reason why I'm going over this today. I don't see Chad in the chat this morning, but he asked a question a day or two ago about the difference in particle size. And in here, you're going to see differences between one type of urea being pelleted and another type of urea being crystalline. And that's not quite as common nowadays. You actually will see that a lot in ammonium sulfate. You'll see some crystalline ammonium sulfate versus prilled ammonium sulfate nowadays still. Urea generally is always prilled nowadays. Uh, but you, but the point here is, is that there is a difference between the particle size that I didn't address from his question the other day. I, I answered his question. He asked, is there any difference between particle sizes? And I, I said, there may be statistically, but they're going to dissolve so quickly into the soil already. Practically speaking, there's probably not a much of a difference. But I'm, talk, I'm thinking about it from a soil perspective. And in this paper, he actually shows a difference. It, it doesn't have, well, it does have something to do with the soil, but it has to do with the manner in which it was applied before it got to the soil. So the particle type or potentially the particle size may actually have an influence on urea volatilization and i'm going to go through that okay okay here we go it, it, it is well known and this was published in agronomy journal in 1959 it is well known that ammonia losses from surface applied ammonia ammoniacal materials such as ammonium sulfate and ammonium nitrate may be high from soils with ph above 7.5 and negligible from acid soils but the degree to which nitrogen may be lost as ammonia following surface application of urea to sods or to acidic sandy soils has not been generally appreciated. Now, remember, this was in the 50s. He didn't know then what we know now. And so this concept or this idea that uh, the acidic soils will have limited limited volatilization, it doesn't hold a lot of water nowadays, at least within the, the general soil pH ranges that we would grow grass in. There is an influence on soil pH, clearly, okay? But don't think just because you have an acidic soil that you're not going to have volatilization you will still have some volatilization if the conditions are right. pH will affect that. But if your pH is five or five and a half, don't think you're going you're gonna to have no volatilization. You may just have less volatilization than if it's six and a half or seven and a half, but it can still occur. Essentially, urea is a, physiological, is, is a physiologically alkaline form of ammonia. It is converted to ammonium carbonate by urease, an enzyme which is usually abundant wherever microbial activity is taking place. Ammonium carbonate is unstable and releases ammonia, which escapes to the atmosphere unless an efficient ammonia absorbing mechanism such as soil cation exchange capacity is present. This is, okay, so remember, this is in the 50s. A lot of this has since been, our, our knowledge, we've gained a lot of knowledge on this. And some of this isn't, it doesn't exactly line up with current information, just letting you know. So it doesn't have as much to do with the cation exchange capacity. It does, but not as much to do with that as it simply is moving it into the soil so that it doesn't volatilize as it dries the, the urea particle. If it gets wet and then dries, that process will greatly increase volatilization. And what he's saying here is, is that the, the uh, which escapes the atmosphere, unless an efficient ammonia absorbing mechanism such as CEC exists. So that does have an effect, but not near to the degree as 
proper management of water. Okay, just to be clear. Uh, Martin and Chapman recognized the significance of alkalizing effect of urea and reported that appreciable loss of ammonia took place from a sandy soil with a pH of 6.7 when urea nitrogen was incorporated in the soil. So as you, if you don't know, you'll know now, is that when you apply urea, the, the, that process of converting urea into the various forms of nitrogen, ammonium, and then nitrate, actually will result in a little bit of an increase in pH. And I use that to my advantage in research uh, when I'm trying to do, to do that actual function, when I'm trying to avoid certain, when I'm trying to, to influence the, like the solubility of iron or I'm trying to move things in a certain way, I will selectively choose a nitrogen source for that purpose. It's a long convoluted story, but you will see pH go up a little bit when it's initially hydrolyzed. But then over time, ammonium and nitrate, you'll see the pH come right back down. Generally speaking, I'm saying these in general terms here, okay. Burton and Jackson reported recently on several papers of comparisons of urea to ammonium nitrate top-dressed on coastal Bermuda grass sods and showed that ammonium nitrate was quite consistently superior to urea. Average yields of urea were about 80.3% of those from ammonium nitrate over a three-year period. Yeah, I wish we still had ammonium nitrate. <laughs> As you all know, we've been doing this for so many years. The ammonium nitrate it was a was the rock star of granular fertilizer. You would see turf come out of, I mean, the color would just be tremendous. So with urea, we're having to convert the urea to ammonium and then to nitrate. So that conversion process, a little bit is lost. There's a little bit, you know, a little bit change in the nitrogen, and and the response is a result only after the ammonium and nitrate are formed. Well, ammonium nitrate is already there. It goes straight into the system, and it was really good. But it's not around anymore because of Oklahoma City bombing and other things. The hydrolysis of urea following incorporation in the soil is very rapid under Florida conditions. Vulcan sweat, uh, I don't know what year that was, showed that conversion of 60 parts per million of urea nitrogen approached completion in 22 hours, except in certain subsoils, virgin soils, or soils containing appreciable residues of copper. But even in the latter cases, conversion usually was complete within 68 hours. Now, if you remember the day a day or two ago, I had mentioned that just in passing that the conversion from urea to ammonium and ammonium to nitrate happens very quickly I, I think i even mentioned it happens in a matter of days not weeks or months so that conversion as long as there's appreciable urease which is pretty much ubiquitous and as long as it's a normal sort of soil the, the urea is not going to stay in the urea form very long at all it's going to convert over to ammonium very rapidly within a day or two. What they're saying is 22 hours. And even in the worst case scenario, they found it to be within 68 hours. So three, three or four days, it's, it's converted over. And then that ammonium conversion to nitrate, as long as there's um, sufficient amounts of oxygen, as long as it's, again, a normal arable soil, the conversion from ammonium to nitrate also happens very rapidly. Okay. So, so don't think you put it out and it's still urea. I mean, it's converted over probably by the next day. The majority of it has done that. It has already been converted. And it's going to be in a plant available form at that point. Okay. The experimental, I'm not going to really explain the experimental because experimental, I mean, I'm going to explain it. I'm not going to read it because it's very different than what, what you might be used to. Basically, at the time, they didn't have all the kinks worked out how to measure volatilization in the field. Nowadays, we have most of it worked out where we use acid traps to to trap the ammonia volatilization in the air. And then we titrate that acid trap out and determine how much was uh, absorbed into this, into the acid. They didn't quite have all that figured out back then. They used the same concept, but not, they didn't use an acid trap in a jar. They basically it's a small beaker with um, sulfuric acid in it. And it's in a jar that's over the turf in the bottom of it, the jars cut out. And so it traps all the, all the volatilized ammonia. Back then, they used the same concept that they used metal tins that had an absorption absorptive pad in the in the bottom of the pan. They turned it upside down, and that pad had um, sulfuric acid on it. And through a series of lab tests, they determined that they were able to absorb some of the ammonia as it volatilized on that pad. And that's how they did it. Okay. In this study, they're going to do they're going to work with four different warm season grasses. The other day, I think it was yesterday. Someone asked me about doing more work on warm season or showing more work on warm season grasses. This this study was done on warm season grasses, including centipede, St. Augustine grass, Bahia grass, and Bermuda grass. Um, so they basically, they, they use these metal tins on bare soil, and then they use the metal tins on sod, and they looked at a couple of different things. And they, they applied, I'll just read through it. They, they, it's not in their materials and methods. I'll read through it when we get to the results here. 
they applied urea as a pellet, so basically a prill. And then they also applied urea in a crystalline form. And they applied various rates, but I'm only going to look at the 100-pound rate, which is about 2.3 pounds per thousand of nitrogen. So they applied two pounds, I'll just say two pounds of nitrogen per thousand in a pelleted urea form or a crystalline form. And they also applied ammonium nitrate in a pelleted form. And they also applied UAN in a solution form. And they were going to look at the various volatilizations from these forms of nitrogen applied to four warm season grasses, sod grasses, okay? So, and then they, well, that's what they did on that. I'll, I'll, come, I'll come back to that. I have, I'm going to show this in a graph form. And then they also did this on bare soil with no grass. And the soils, they had probably 10 different soils, which they don't, again, this was in the 50s, but they don't do a great job of identifying the characteristics of the soils. But they do have soil pH and cation exchange capacity of each soil. And I'll go, into, I'll go over that when I get to that graph. And I'm not going to show that. And I'm going to show the temperature. They also did it with five soils. And they did it, they measured volatilization at 45 degrees Fahrenheit, 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and then 76 degrees Fahrenheit. And they wanted to show, they wanted to know, was there any difference in volatilization as the temperature increased? And I'm going to show that in a graph format as well. Okay, so let's just get to that. If I can get to it. All right, let me see. So, as I open this up, <clears throat> I think I can get to it. Let's see what happens when I hit this button. Nothing. Okay, one second, guys. I gotta fix this. Actually, I gotta go here. Gotta give me one minute here to fix this. I didn't have it fixed yet. Okay. <clears throat> I'm gonna So I'm trying to get, for those listening, I'm trying to get this PowerPoint uh, organized here so you guys can see what I'm showing on the screen. I think I can get it here in a few seconds. Okay, I'm going to go with that. So what we're looking at here, what we're looking at here is nitrogen volatilization from warm season sod. Remember, so this is going to be the average of all of those sods. So all four of those sods. Um, from various nitrogen sources, we have ammonium nitrate, UAN as a solution, urea as a pellet, and urea as a crystalline. And then on the y-axis, we have nitrogen volatilized as a percent of applied. All right. And what we see is from ammonium nitrate, 0.3% volatilized from ammonium nitrate. When we applied UAN, which is a blend of urea and ammonium nitrate, we have 11.5% volatilized. And then when we and then we go to the urea pellet. 20% volatilized, whereas the urea crystalline, 30% volatilized. So let's first look at the ammonium nitrate and UAN. You'll notice on this bar chart, oh, whoops, hang on, I don't have that whole thing on here, guys. I'm not showing the other thing. Let me get that over. Okay. Now we're cooking. So you'll notice on here is that the... Uh, as we move from left to right, we're increasing the amount of urea. So in ammonium nitrate, there's no urea. UAN, there's half urea. And then urea pellet and urea crystalline is 46%. So the more urea is in these materials, we see there's greater volatilization. When the form of nitrogen is ammonium or nitrate, the nitrate can't volatilize. It can denitrify, but it can't lose a nitrogen via volatilization. It needs to be an ammonium form or the urea form being converted over to ammonium in order for that to happen. All right, and we don't see hardly any volatilization coming from ammonium nitrate. But the UAN, which is half urea, we do see 11.5%. So there's some urea in that blend or that application. You see some volatilization, about 11%, okay? The urea pellet and urea crystalline, these are your both urea. They're both applied at two pounds per thousand, and we see 20% volatilized from a pellet 
and with 30% volatilized from a crystalline. So why is this happening? Well, how did this happen? The authors are going to postulate that they, they don't show definitive evidence of this. They're just trying to explain this. They postulated that the reason they saw this was because the pelletized urea was a little bit bigger particle and a little potentially a little um, easier to fall through the canopy of the grass and get to the soil. Whereas the crystalline urea, they, vis they observed the crystalline urea remaining on the turf grass leaves after application. And they, they're, they're, that's probably what, why you see greater, greater volatilization. They actually, their um, explanation of why this happened isn't quite on target, and I'll get into that. Um, we know now that whenever that urea is going to, any nitrogen is going to stay on the leaf surface, you have a greater potential for that to, to get wet and then dry out, and that's either going to result in a burn or can result in volatilization, and that's what we don't want. We don't want the, the prill to get wet and then dry out on its own. That process is going to result in more volatilization as opposed to watering it in and keeping it wet, getting it into the soil. Okay. So they, I think they're on target here. If they, if they observed that there's more, there was more crystalline urea remaining on the leaf surface compared in, in the crystalline urea compared to the pelletized urea, then that's probably why they see saw greater volatilization. You got to wash that off. Remember we talked about we, we talked about this the other day where you got the irrigation, you got to irrigate this to you know, 0.1 to 0.2 inches of water to get it off the leaf surface and into the soil, through the thatch and into the soil. That's what greatly reduces this number down to you know lower levels. Even this 20% would be reduced down to maybe 5 or 10%. You would cut this number in half essentially or greater just by adding a little bit of water. So in cases where you might have a larger prill to Chad's question the other day, oh, here he is in chat. Chad, to your question the other day, this is the reason I'm showing this article is that I, I, didn't, I don't think I really gave a full picture or a, a, a well-rounded answer to your question about the, do particle sizes matter. In the soil, once it hits the soil, I don't think they're really going to matter that much because they're going to dissolve so quickly. Within an hour or two, all the urea is going to be dissolved regardless of whether it's a micro or, or a fairway grade particle. But in the process of getting to the soil, there may be a difference. You, you don't want those really fine urea particles, like in the case of crystalline, to be sitting on the leaf surface and allowed to dry out. You're either going to burn the turf and tip burn the turf, or you're going to result, it's going to result in greater volatilization as opposed to watering it in and getting it off the leaf surface. So in cases where you can't adequately control the water, the particle size might actually be influential. It might make a difference. You, you might need to choose a particle probably a larger particle size that doesn't sit on the surface it bounces off the leaf surface and or finds its way into the canopy and gets you know into the canopy you just don't want it to be sitting on the leaf the next figure is nitrogen volatilized from bare soil so now we're going to be talking about the actual soil let me get this other one open here on this side because i got to read this okay so in this case the lfs lfs LFS2 here, we're looking at several different soils. This is the Lakeland Fine Sand 2, Lakeland Fine Sand 1, Arredondo Fine Sand, which is where I did my research, and Dr. Volk did this research here at the same location. And then we have a peat, and then we have a marl soil here. Okay, these are the, these are the soils that, um, that I chose to, as rep, to represent the various issues. Each one of these has a different pH and a different CEC. And what you're going to notice is the urea pellet from, a, from this Lakeland fine sand was quite high the, in volatilization. It was almost 60% from 60% from the Lakeland fine sand number two. Now, the Lakeland fine sand two, two had a pH of about 6.3 and a cation exchange capacity of 1.6. Okay. So as we move this direction from left to right, you're going to see the urea volatilization from the pelleted urea go down until we get to the marl soil, which I'll explain in a minute. And in general, we're looking at reducing pH from the Lakeland Fine Sand 2 to the Lakeland Fine Sand 1 to the Arredondo Fine Sand and to the peat. We're reducing the pH from about 6.3 here. This is around 6.3. And down here at this peat, this was a 5.6, okay, in pH. And the Arredondo Fine Sand was about a 5.8. So we're generally removing down uh, a pH, but we're also in general, moving up in CEC. 
the peat has a CEC of 120, as opposed to the Lakeland Fine Sand had a CEC of one. So what this is showing is, is that there is a, a, a influence of soil pH and soil CEC on volatilization of nitrogen as urea. If we have a low CEC and a, I mean, sorry, a low pH and a high CEC, they, 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 it resulted in l less volatilization. If you had a little bit higher pH and a little bit lower CEC, it was resulting in greater nitrogen volatilization from urea. Okay. And you see the ammonium sulfate here and the UAN here as well. Okay. The UAN volatilization, which contained a lot of urea, was very high in the, in the high pH, low CEC soil, whereas it was basically zero in all the other soils. Okay. So if you wanted to know, you know, is there an influence of pH or CEC on nitrogen volatilization? Dr. Volk would say from his publication, yes, there was an influence of CEC. The higher CEC soils generally resulted in less volatilization. The higher pH soils generally resulted in a little bit more volatilization than the lower pH soils. But notice what I said at the beginning is you still get volatilization. Whoops. You still get, and this is not right. You still get volatilization from soils that have 5.8 and 5.6. Even in these lower pHs, you're still going to have some volatilization occur. Now, the, the marl soil, where you see these very high numbers from ammonium sulfate and from UAN and from urea, the pelletized urea, you're dealing with 15% volatilization from urea, 37 from ammonium sulfate, whereas none of the other soils had any appreciable volatilization from ammonium sulfate. None. There was... Ammonium sulfate didn't result in any volatilization at all, except in this marl soil. This marl soil has a pH of 7.8. Okay. So in that, and it has an, an average, a CEC of around 7 too. So in this particular case, we're dealing with soil pHs that are getting to the limit. Remember I say, if you're in soil pHs of 5 to 8, I don't really worry about it a whole lot. It's when you get to those limits, those very, very, very low 5s or very high 7s into the 8s is when you want to start kind of being aware of certain issues. And in this particular example, this, this is one reason why I say that. You don't really see a whole lot going on um, until you get this really high, um, when I say a whole lot going on, a whole lot going on with ammonium sulfate, until you get way up close to 8. Then you could have some volatilization of ammonia of nitrogen from ammonium sulfate in this marl soil that had a 7.8 in a, in, a, in a low CEC. So a high pH and a lowish CEC, you know, it could result in volatilization from ammonium sulfate, whereas ammonium sulfate generally won't volatilize nitrogen too much anyway compared to urea. Let's go to the last one, or the second to last one. Nitrogen volatilization from bare soil. Now, now we're looking at temperature. So same sort of bar graph. We're looking at three soils and nitrogen volatilization on the y-axis. And we're looking at temperatures. So within one soil, three different temperatures. And we so see from this uh, Lakeland fine sand one and Lakeland fine sand three, and then we have a Leon fine sand one. When you're, when you're dealing with cold temperatures, 45 degrees, there's essentially no volatilization, 1% or less. When you go up to 60 degrees in all of these soils, the, the volatilization went up drastically from 1 to 7 or 1 to 9%. In the case of Leon Fine Sand, it went from 0 to 16%. So we're increasing the temperature by 15 degrees from 45 to 60, and we see an increase, you know, significant and biological increase. When you go to 76 degrees, which now we're dealing with soils like in the middle of the summer, it goes up to 40% in Lakeland Fine Sand. And Lakeland Fine Sand 3 is 16%, and then the Leon Fine Sand is 27%. So we went from zero in the Leon Fine Sand at 45 degrees Fahrenheit to 27 at 76 degrees Fahrenheit. From essentially zero in the Lakeland Fine Sand 1, 1 or 0% when it's 45 degrees, to 40 when it's 76. So this, this just shows the, the influence of pH. I mean, I'm sorry, of soil temperature. Soil temperature can have a dramatic influence on on volatilization. And then this is one reason why I have that position is because of work like this. It's pretty clear in the literature that pH, soil temperature, and CEC can have an influence on volatilization. I'm just saying like within the ranges of five to eight, 
you're going to have volatilization regard. I mean, it's going to be a little lower as you get lower, but you're still going to have volatilization even at five. You're just going to have less than if you were at seven or seven and a half. But don't think you're not going to have any. You're going to have some probably. Okay. All right, let's change this if I can get back on track here. I'm going to wrap this whole thing up real quick. I'm going to go down to the summary because we basically covered everything in these graphs. He, he did word some stuff here at the end I thought was pretty clever. Yeah, let's read this. So it appears that volatile, volatile loss of ammonia following surface application of pelleted or crystalline urea to sods or light sandy soils, even in the acidic range, may be considerable and must be taken into consideration in practice. Now remember at the beginning, he said in the introduction, he said, Unless it's acidic, it's generally considered to be low in acidic soils. But now at the conclusions, he's saying we found it was substantial in acidic soils. Even in acidic soils, you can say you can have volatilization. The limitations to be placed in this use of urea must be determined regionally for each com combination of soils and cropping systems encountered. That's a, that's a scientific way of saying it depends on your location. I can't say you're not going to have any volatilization unless I know more information about all this stuff. And I can't say you're going to have a lot of volatilization unless I know your crop and how you're applying the water and the soil. And there's a lot more, a lot more to it. So making these broad general statements is, is, and we have to make some sort of generalities to help people, you know, among the entire state of Kentucky, I can't say, you know, a different recommendation for every lawn. You have to have some generalities, but just understand in those generalities comes a lot of variation. It could be wrong. Okay. Ultimately, the comparative value of nitrogenous materials, nitrogenous materials must be determined by crop response. Now, how many times have you heard me say that? Keep an eye on the turf. Keep an eye on the turf. Don't worry so much about numbers on a piece of paper. And here you have 1959, Dr. Volk saying, the comparative value of nitrogenous materials must be based upon the crop response measured in light of the knowledge of various factors affecting the efficiency of the material. So basically, the back background information that we have on science with you know, joined with what we're observing in the field, crop response, plant response. We have to consider this. At, and that, that also goes for, by the way, when you're looking at nitrogen uh, release curves, oh, this, this, you said, you've heard me say this many times, this nitrogen product is going to last 45 days or 90 days or whatever. Again, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I don't care. Okay. I couldn't care less. I'll care about the turf response. And this was written how long ago? 65 years ago, Dr. Volk wrote, it must be based upon the crop response in these 45 day, 90 days, 120 day, you know, polymer coat, you know, marketing sheets are not based on crop response. They're based upon dissolution in water in a lab usually. Okay. So base it on the crop response and then it's an even playing field. And when we've done that, it's, it's, you know, occasionally slow releases will be superior to your ear. Well, I'm going to show some papers where you'll see that. But in general, it's very hard to beat urea. I'm just saying, when you use crop response, don't be fooled by these marketing sheets saying that's 90-day response or 90-day release or whatever. Look at the turf. Use the turf. At, uh, da -da. at present, surface applications of urea to sod or light sandy soils when they are in moist conditions is not recommended unless the urea is washed into the soil or covered by tillage. So wash it into the soil. They knew that in 1959. And the literature since 1959 has done nothing but Continue to confirm that. Average volatile losses of nitrogen from ammonia were were 20% and 29% from pelleted and crystalline urea respectively during seven days following application at one at two pounds an end to Bermuda grass, Bahia grass, and Austin grass and carpet grass sods. Well, I thought he had a different grass. The average loss following an equivalent application of ammonium nitrate was 0.3%. So was, you know, with ammonium nitrate, the volatilization was almost zero. And the following application of a solution containing 16% nitrogen, urea nitrogen, and 15.5% ammonium nitrogen was 11%. So it was very low when they sprayed it out, but it was high when they used straight urea, whether it was pelleted or crystalline. Volatile losses of nitrogen during seven days following surface application of pelleted urea to moist, bare soils and field in laboratory tests range from 17 to 59% for acidic soils with cation exchange capacities of 7.2 or less. While the loss of ammonium sulfate usually was less than 1%, which we went over, very low with ammonium sulfate, losses with the urea ammonium nitrate solution were much lower than for pelleted urea unless the exchange capacity was low and pH was high. That was the moral soil. The pH was very high and the CEC was low. 
at temperatures of 45 degrees Fahrenheit or low soil temperature, I'm sorry, or low soil moisture, approaching the air dry condition, marked retarded ammonium loss, markedly retarded ammonia. Oh, let me read this again. I'm messing it up. A temperature of 45 degrees Fahrenheit or low soil moisture, approaching the air dry condition, markedly retarded ammonium loss but as little as 1% soil moisture in the lightest soil or at 60 degrees Fahrenheit temperature gave a significant rate of ammonia evolution. I didn't show that, that last graph there, but basically they had another graph here. I'll show right here. This graph right here has differences in soil moisture and at zero to like 0.5% soil moisture, there's really no volatilization. When you get up to one, then you see this start to spike and you get up to two, you really see ammonium volatilization as a result of, or as a influenced by soil moisture really go skyrocketing. But I didn't show that because at the end of the day, what are you going to do? Not apply water? You're, not, you're, you're, going to, you're going to dry out the soil and have no moisture in the soil to reduce volatilization. You're not going to have a plant. So they're just showing that the, the, uh, the lack of soil moisture will greatly reduce volatilization and the presence of soil moisture will greatly increase it. But there's nothing we can do about that. We have to have soil moisture to grow the plant. So I didn't show that. Okay, so in summary, basically what he found was low CEC increased the likelihood of volatilization. High pH, particularly near 7.8, increased the volatilization, but volatilization also occurred even at low pH soils, even in, even in low pH soils. They also found that the low temperatures down near 45 degrees Fahrenheit resulted in very little loss of ammonia volatilization, whereas room temperature 76 degrees Fahrenheit resulted in a great deal of ammonia volatilization. And they also found that uh, pelletized urea resulted in less volatilization than crystalline urea and they postulated although i didn't show it i guess i can i guess i can show where he showed this or he he attempted to explain it uh well anyway they attempted to explain why crystalline urea volatilized more and what they that what they postulated was it was because they observed the crystals laying on the leaf surface after application whereas the pelleted urea they didn't observe as many uh granules laying on the leaf surface because it laid on the leaf surface it volatilized at greater quantities from the crystalline form okay so particle size could matter you know in that case where if it lays on the leaf surface in terms of volatilization all right let me see if what's in the chat if you have anything you want me to go over So YouTuber49 says, thoughts on fused nitrogen products, ammonium sulfate and ammonium nitrate. Um, I haven't really done a whole lot of work on that. I don't know if it's actually fused or if it's just they're blending it. There are cases where they do f blend them or fuse them together in the actual liquor when they're, when they're granulating the product, when they're making the product. Um, I have to, I'd have to look that up in the literature, but I would just say initially my thoughts are if it has ammonium sulfate and ammonium nitrate in there, there's a pretty good chance you're going to have a really good looking turf grass <laughs> if applied at the right rate at the right time. So I don't have any concerns if YouTuber, if you have a, if you have a concern about, oh, maybe, let me read the next, the next, uh, or the next comment you have. I saw Rapid dramatic results on POA annual in cold Seattle climates with fusing. Oh, Simplot 2600. Okay. Ammonium sulfate, ammonium nitrate. It wasn't scientific test, but when I used it, I noticed it. Yeah. Well, it's ammonium sulfate and ammonium nitrate. So in that, you have three macronutrients that are all in, already in the plant available form. We have ammonium, we have nitrate, and we have sulfate. So all three of those macronutrients, well, nitrogen, ammonium, it's not a nutrient, but the nitrogen and the sulfate, they're all available to be taken up into the plant immediately. Okay, there's no need to have them convert over from urea or have some sort of other soil process occur before it can be taken up. So I would, I would expect what you just wrote. <laughs> I would expect a very good looking turf grass if it's applied at the right rate at the right time from a fused product like that, that it contains ammonium sulfate and ammonium nitrate. Yeah, I have no... Uh, I have very little doubt that that would that that wouldn't occur. So Vahid Navi, I, you have UAN twenty eight zero zero liquid. I just want to know what is the effect on soil pH. Well, the long term effect of most nitrogen sources on pH is going to be an acidifying effect because nitrification is going to result in a little bit of acidification. 
So we might be splitting hairs a little bit here when I'm talking about urea changing soil pH. Urea will usually result in an increase in soil pH, but it doesn't last that long. It's not like prolonged use of urea is going to result in increased pH from five and a half to six and a half or seven. That's not what I was going for. I was I didn't intend to to imply that. Um, but I don't I don't know. I can look it up, but I don't know exactly to what degree UAN would ad, would adjust pH in the short run. In general, the conversion of nitrate into nit I'm sorry nitrogen into nitrate that process results in a reduction in pH over time. So it's right the regular use of any nitrogen source that is I shouldn't say any, but I mean nitrogen sources that nitrify uh, will generally result in a reduction in pH. You know, so Randy says no change in soil pH from you, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, in terms of like the initial response, I don't, I don't know. Um, it's urea and ammonium nitrate. I, I'm not sure. I'd have to look that up, guys. Okay, um, I'm, in, I'm ending today with. One of my favorite songs from one of my favorite blues rock band. I will be back tonight at 9, or 9 p.m. Eastern time to go over some more nitrogen. And then don't forget tomorrow night or tomorrow afternoon. I'll post the time. But it'll be tomorrow after lunch. I'm going to go over some more nitrogen, liquid nitrogen things. And don't forget to check out the podcast. Podcasts have been really going crazy lately. I don't know what's going on, but there's been hundreds a day being downloaded. Whereas before there was five or ten. But any of your podcast platforms have my podcast available. Please check that out if you just want to hang out and listen to it. Until tonight, guys, uh, I will leave you with a little bit of music, and I'll see you guys later tonight. Be kind. See you later.